Well, I'm, I'm really excited about, uh, about this Christmas season, this Advent season, and working through God's Word together, uh, unfolding uh, and, and finding afresh and anew uh, the promise of Christmas, the promise of peace, of hope, of joy, and of love uh, that is to us and for us at Christmas and in the life, death, and even resurrection of Jesus. This morning, I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 11 through 22. As we've seen even and read earlier this morning, the prophet Isaiah, speaking some 700 years even before the birth of Jesus, foresaw a day when, as we read there in Isaiah 9, chapter 6, right, to, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Jews in Isaiah's Isaiah's day understood this as pointing to the birth of a coming king. A king unlike any other king in their history. A Messiah. One who would rule in justice. One who would set men right with God. Even the earliest Christians believed the same thing. They read Isaiah 9 and they saw Jesus. They knew that Jesus was this king who fulfilled this prophecy. And at his birth, even in Luke chapter 2, angels sing to shepherds in fields nearby, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so at Christmas and around Christmas, we look at this baby lying wrapped up on on a tuft of hay in a stable carved out of a hillside in Bethlehem. And we think, ah, yes, finally, peace is here. If any of you have ever had a baby in your home, you know that that is not necessarily true. We've had three babies at one time or another in our home, our three daughters, and and that time is anything but peaceful. But then we also look at the world around us today. Places like Syria, places like the Ukraine, cities like Chicago, even Dallas in recent news, and we don't see peace We see war and and, and fighting and death and destruction. We even look at the world into which Jesus was born into. We said earlier that the 400 years before Jesus was born was a time of silence from heaven. And that is true, but it was also a time of great war on the earth. And the world that Jesus is born into is, is not a peaceful world. At his birth, King Herod, who is the king of Israel, more of a figurehead than an actual ruler. But he finds out that a new king is being born. And what does he do? He sends out an edict that all male babies should be put to death. We look at Jesus' life and his ministry, even as we saw just a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, when Jesus himself says this to his disciples, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And we're left then to wonder, what what do we miss here? Where's the peace that this prince is supposed to bring? What's really going on here? Is Jesus, is he somehow failed us, this prince of peace in his birth? Do we miss something about it? He can be called Prince of Peace and then say, I've come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Rest assured this morning that Jesus is indeed the Prince of Peace. And his birth signals a new day of peace on earth. Just not the kind of peace we often expect. But it's most certainly the kind of peace that we need. 
And so then looking forward to Christmas, let us look upon this infant Jesus, the Prince of Peace, knowing that his birth is where the promise of true peace is fulfilled. To see the full scope of Jesus' peacemaking mission, we have to go beyond the manger. We have to go beyond Bethlehem. For Jesus was not born just to be born. His work is not complete merely in the incarnation. No, we have to go beyond the manger, beyond Bethlehem, to Calvary, to the cross, where the promise of peace at Christmas is most perfectly realized. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, points us to that reality in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. Therefore... Remember, at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God add blessing to the reading of his word. In order for us to grasp, to to get a handle on the full realization of the promise of peace at Christmas, we, we first must know what sort of hostility it is that is being pacified. What is it that Jesus comes to bring peace for? What's the purpose? First, we see in verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 2 that real hostility, the, the kind of hostility that Jesus comes to pacify, to do away with, is more than war. Real hostility is more than war. It is opposition to God and separation from Him. Paul here in these verses calls the members of the church of Ephesians who were mostly Gentiles at that time, people who were not ethnic Jews, in light of their free salvation by faith in Jesus, he calls them to remember who they used to be. They were reviled and disrespected by the ethnic Jews who are also now Christians in the congregation. So get that. You've got those who are Jews and those who are Gentiles, and they're all together coming to Christ and now trying to figure out how in the world do, who, who used to be natural enemies, figure out how to get along together. They were reviled and disrespected by these Jews because they were, quote, uncircumcised, right? They were ethnically separated from the people of God. But more than this, they were spiritually separated from the promises of God. We read in these verses that they were separated from Christ. That means having no relationship to Him. They were alienated from the people of God and strangers to God's promises to His people. What's more, these Gentiles previously had no hope for the future because they were without God in the world. Separated from Him. Even in opposition to Him. Just earlier in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, Paul writes this. 
You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Church, this is true hostility. To be living according to our desires and and not according to God's good desires for us. To be against God like this and to make ourselves enemies to God and to be the subjects of His holy justice and punishment for our rebellion. That is true hostility. Not not wars fought between nations with bullets flying and and bombs falling. But, But this is real hostility. The Gentiles, while, while Paul addresses them directly in this verse, are not the only ones who are opposed to God. In verses 11 and 12, in fact, Paul subtly calls even his own people, the Jews, to responsibility for their sin and disobedience. And he does this in the way that he talks about how the Jews despised the Gentiles for their uncircumcision. He says that the Gentiles were reviled by those who were called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. What's going on here? Why is this important? Very very briefly, you'll recall that the circumcision, that circumcision was the physical sign of the covenant promises that God gave with a, or God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. That through Abraham, God would bless the nations and he would give him descendants that would outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the, on the seas, on the seashores. The physical practice of circumcision then in, in Jewish life among Abraham's descendants was then a reminder to all of the Jews of that promise throughout the ages. But a physical sign, even like circumcision, does not indicate that the individual that is bearing that sign or repeating that sign is actually in right relationship with God. Rather, the sign that God truly desires and looks upon is a kind of circumcision, but not one made in the flesh by hands, but a circumcision of the heart. Which is why God himself says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Circumcise your heart and be no longer stubborn. Right? Bear the sign of the promises on your heart, not just in the flesh, but, but in your soul. And in Deuteronomy 36, Moses says, The Lord will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And so when Paul points to merely the physical aspect of circumcision here among the Jewish believers in Ephesus, he's pointing even to the disobedience and rebellion of the Jews in not internalizing the sign of the covenant so as to love the Lord and to obey Him in truth. And thus the rebellion by both Jews and Gentiles alike is why Paul can write in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Real hostility, friends, is is not war between nations, but in the war that rages and, and we are waging in our hearts and are fighting against a holy God. That's real hostility. That's real war. This sin, it affects and infects all of our lives. Spiritually and otherwise. Sin is why we experience sickness and death and hatred and enmity and war between nations. Strife, starvation, myriad other evils in this life are all the result of sin which affects and infects every aspect of our lives. See that these things are are not the problem, right? The, the, The problems in the world, the things that we think are problems, right? Hunger, starvation, war, strife. 
These are not the problem, but merely symptoms of a far greater hostility. Church, this morning, we have to understand that hostility in the world and even hostility in in your life and in my life, relational conflict and, and other things like that, these are the results of the greater problem of sin. They are not the problem themselves. They're just, they're symptoms of a greater problem. In order to treat this problem, we have to treat the problem itself, not just merely the symptoms. If you go to your doctor because you have a, an ache in your abdomen, a pain in your abdomen, and you feel weak and, and, and nauseous at times, you're not really sure what's going on, you just don't feel quite right, and you go to the doctor and he diagnoses you with cancer, but all he sends you home with is, is Tylenol and some anti-nausea medicine, he's not really treating the problem. The cancer will continue to grow. And will will grow out of control if not treated properly. The same is true with sin. In our lives, if we don't address the root problem of, of the symptom of, of, of hostility in our world and in, in our individual lives, we will forever battle and face hostility and not ever know exactly what to do with it. So if all we do is sign peace treaties and ceasefires, we'll never have real peace in the world and end to hostility in the world. If all we do is, is, is just kind of... Come to an understanding in, in our relationships when there is conflict and, and don't actually you know, get to the root problem of, of sin and selfishness and pride that cause those conflicts. Well, we're going to continue to have conflict and, and not know how to resolve those things. And so then seeing that real hostility is more than just war, it's more than just conflict in the world, it's more than just strife in our life and in our relationships. We see next then that, that true peace is far more than tranquility. True peace is far more than, than calm and quiet. True peace is reconciliation to God and, and even among the family of faith, even among other people. Paul shows us this in verses 13 through 16. Verse 13 starts with my favorite word in Scripture, but. Right? But is a good word in Scripture because but signals a new truth that is now contrary to what came before. The Gentiles were far away from God, but now, but now have been brought near. They've been brought close in Jesus Christ by his blood. This but reminds us that the bad news has turned to good and that war will soon turn to peace in Jesus' death on the cross and in his resurrection. So very plainly then in verse 14, Paul says that Jesus is our peace. He himself is our peace. This word peace is the the equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom. It just means a state of of cosmic peace and harmony. Shalom, peace. Uh, The Greek word is irene, from which we get the name Irene, after which my my first daughter's middle name is, is Irene. Shalom, peace, is when things are the way they ought to be in God's design. And this peace, this cosmic harmony... That Jesus, the Prince of Peace, provides has both vertical and horizontal effects. Okay? Vertically, Jesus brings mankind peace with God. This is the most urgent need for peace. If true hostility is not war, but, but is enmity, is conflict with God between us and God, then we most primarily need peace with God. And Jesus provides that vertically. This is the peace that that is to be on earth among those with whom God is pleased, according to the angels in Luke 2. There is no peace with God unless God is pleased with us. And God is pleased with us 
only when we trust His Son, Jesus, who paid the penalty for our sin, paid the penalty for our war against God. This Jesus who was born a fragile, frail, infant baby in a manger in Bethlehem. This is precisely what Paul means in verses 15 and 16 when he says that Jesus has abolished, he has made obsolete the law of commandments so that he might reconcile, that is, he might set at peace men to God through the cross, killing the hostility that we had created between us and God. Paul uses really extreme language here about killing hostility. But it's it's, it's a great way to think about what Jesus does for us. Where there was hostility, Jesus has killed it dead. Friend, today, if you're not at peace spiritually, if you are looking for peace, if you're searching for internal spiritual peace, you you are, everything in your life might be fine. But in your heart and in your mind, you know things are not right. And you stay up at night wondering about purpose, looking for hope, needing something to get you out of bed the next day. If you're searching for that kind of spiritual peace, know that peace with God and peace with God from God is more than possible. It's available. And it's already been paid for by Jesus, the Son of God in flesh, born as a baby in Bethlehem at Christmas. So vertically, Jesus gives us peace between us and God, but horizontally, Jesus is born so that he might die and that there would be peace among men who trust in him. The Jews and the Gentiles of both Jesus' day and Paul's day were primarily separated as a result of the Old Testament law that we read in Exodus and in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. Jews followed it. Gentiles did not. That was the separation. Okay? By nature of that very fact, the two groups were at constant enmity. They were always fighting with each other. They were never really friends or, or neighbors. And yet Jesus has come that there might be peace among Natural enemies. This is not, certainly not, a geopolitical kind of peace, right? This is not a peace between nations that were warring with one another. As Jesus even says in John 14, 26 and 27, as we read earlier, He says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Yet not as the world gives do I give to you. So the world wants to bring peace by means of treaties, by means of, of ceasefires. But in history, we find that all of these inevitably fail. I cannot think of a single treaty that has ever been made in the history of the world up to this point. I'm sure there are some that are still in existence, though, that have not at some point failed. Right? The, the Roman Empire is not an empire anymore because there was a treaty somewhere along the way that was transgressed. Right? There was peace that was transgressed. And I would dare say that even all the treaties that are and ceasefires that are in place in the world today will one day fail. Because our sinful, in our sinfulness, in our pride, in our selfishness, in our political ambition, we will want something that someone else has. And regardless of an agreement that we made with them, we're, we're going to take that thing. You know, Jesus intends to do far more than provide a new treaty for men to follow. He dies so that people who previously hated one another by faith in Him, would now be family. And He does this by living a sinless life and by perfectly fulfilling God's law in the Old Testament, the thing that separated most immediately Jews from Gentiles. 
And since then, Jesus fulfills the law, since he completes it perfectly, it's no, it no longer stands as a dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. There is now no division. There's no fracture, just family for all who trust in Christ. According to verse 15, Jesus does this so that the two, the, the two opposing parties, Jews and Gentiles, they might become one and be reconciled to each other, set at peace, even as they are at peace with God through faith in Jesus. See here the incredible impact that Jesus has on warring people, on people who hate each other. Jesus has the ability to do more than call for a ceasefire. He's able to make a way for all interpersonal hostilities to disappear entirely. Racial hatred, ethnic hatred, socioeconomic conflicts, sexist misogyny, all results of sin and our hearts worked out in the world are made right in Jesus. Friend, do you want peace with God? Do you want peace with God? Do you want to be right with the God who created you and who loves you and who's designed you to worship him? Do you want peace with your neighbor? Do you want peace in your family? Do you want peace in our our church body, our, our congregation? Then find and receive true peace, not in your own efforts, but in trusting the Prince of Peace who died that we might be set right with God and with one another. This kind of, of peace has amazing transformative effects. And, and my guess is some of you have seen that, in, maybe in your own life and, and, and maybe in the lives of others. For me, the, the, the clearest example of the kind of peace that God brings in, in, in the lives of individuals among those with whom they hate comes uh, in, in the life of a man named Erlo. Erlo I met uh, seven years ago now, uh, almost eight years ago, in South Africa when Nikki and I, my wife and I, uh, before we were married, actually, we got engaged on that trip. Um, we went on a short, uh, short-term mission trip to South Africa around New Year's of, of 2009. And there in South Africa, we met a man who was working with the, the Christian ministry that we were kind of partnering with. His name was Erlo. Erlo's an older man. It's his late 60s, maybe, maybe early 70s. I don't know. He aged really well, I think. Tall, skinny man with a long white beard. One of the most loving people I've ever met. Erlo spends the majority of his days out in the Zulu tribes that, that surround Escort, South Africa. And he helps those in the, in the Zulu tribes, uh, uh, native black South Africans. Erlo is a white South African. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. Erlo is white, and he works among native black South Africans, helping them to farm and, and grow crops and those sorts of things. But, but also, in, he shares the gospel with them constantly, constantly. But those of you that are familiar with South Africa know that there was a time, period known as apartheid, when, when racism ran rampant in South Africa. Right? White people and black people, both South Africans, both people who had been born in South Africa, hated each other, hated one another. Erlo, by his own testimony to us, was the most racist person that he knew, hated black people could not stand to be in the same vicinity as them. And as an adult, one point in his life, God got a hold of Erlo's heart, pointed him to Christ, and Erlo repented of his sin and trusted in Jesus and was transformed spiritually. Certainly, he was made right with God, but then almost immediately he was made to seek peace with those around him. And now Erlo spends his days working with the people he previously hated, 
helping them to have a, a better life, sustainable agriculture, but most importantly, to know Jesus, the one who had saved him. This kind of peace that, that forgives our greatest sin, this kind of peace that overcomes our most sinful hatred, comes only through Jesus, who is the perfect peacemaker. Paul says in verse 17 that Jesus came preaching peace to those who are far away and to those who are near. Those who are far away, we know, are the Gentiles. We've already talked about those. And those who are near are the Jews, as we've already seen. And Jesus, in his earthly ministry, preached a message of peace to all people, both Jew and Gentile. This we see in the Gospels time and again as we read of Jesus healing Jews and Gentiles as they trust in him. Sitting at wells with Gentile women in the middle of the day, meeting at night with Jewish male leaders, healing groups of lepers of both Jewish and Gentile ethnicity, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to all people and commanding even his own disciples in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations. That Greek word for nations is ethne, which is the same word that Paul uses to refer to Gentiles in Ephesians. Because this is true of Jesus, because Jesus preaches peace to both Jew and Gentile. Paul can confidently say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jesus comes bring, uh, bringing peace, preaching peace, but he's also the one who makes peace as we have seen. It is only through Jesus that all people, man or woman, rich or poor, young or old, black or white or brown or red, Jew or Gentile, American or Iranian, may all have access to the one true God and creator of the universe, the one who has given us life itself. And then so then in verse 18, we read that through Jesus, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul says, for through him, we both have access in one Holy Spirit to God, the Father. Jesus, the only Son of God, who humbled himself to be born in human flesh, feeble and frail and fragile as a baby. This Jesus that we look on and, and wonder at at Christmas is the only way for each of us, both personally and even together, we can have confident and peaceful access to the Father, the one whom we had made ourselves enemies of in our sin. See how good Jesus is here. The Son of God, the, the second person of the Trinity, who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. For the love of God the Father and for the love of the Father's creatures, us, He sets aside His right to that divine exercise of power to be born as a human baby, to live a life without sin, and to die on a cross so that you and so that I and so that anyone who would trust their lives to Jesus could, brought, could boldly and confidently approach the God of the universe who prior to Christ we were at war with because of our sin. The good news is this today. If you know Jesus, if you trust this Jesus, this Prince of Peace, you can approach the Father, God the Father, in peace and with great confidence for all that you need. Think of, think of how great that is. The God of the universe, who we made an enemy to us by our sin, right? In whose sight we deserve the death penalty. We can now, because Christ has died for us in our place and been raised again, now we can go to the king who, who, to, against whom we were traitors. 
And we can go to him boldly and confidently and in peace with no threat of of hostility between us and him because the Prince of Peace has paid the price. The Prince of Peace has built a bridge. The Prince of Peace has made a way. It's hard to approach somebody in confidence when you know that you have wronged them. Especially someone who is in authority over you. So especially someone who has, who has power over you. Uh, I remember a time when I was, I think I was about five years old. It's when we still lived in our old house when I was a kid. And we were driving home from church one day. And uh, I, being a five-year-old, uh, uh, got a little bit lippy with my mother. I don't remember what I said. But I had a bad attitude. And in the car, my dad told me, son, when we get home... Uh, you know, you don't speak to your mother that way, and, and you are going to receive a spanking for that. So, okay. And so I had a plan that as soon as we got home, I was going to get out of the car, I was going to go into the house, and I was going to run just as fast as a five-year-old can, can possibly run to my room and close the door and lock the door so that I would not receive that spanking. And so we got home, and the car stopped. I opened the door. I went inside. And there was the hallway, and I took off running. And so my room was at the end of the hallway. Uh, but you had to kind of like make a little quick 180 turn, and my room was right there. And so I'm running, and I get down the hallway, and I start to make that turn. And I'm reaching for the doorknob, you know, like slam it behind me, real like James Bond-like. And I'm reaching for the doorknob, and all of a sudden the doorknob's getting further away. And I, because, because a five-year-old is not as fast as his father. And so I, I had been caught. And I, I received the, the due penalty for my sin against my mother in the car that day. Let me tell you, it, when I knew what was coming for my sin uh, that day, for, for my disobedience, for my disrespect of my, my mother, there was no way I could confidently face or even boldly face my dad that day. Because I was in the wrong. Because I was in the wrong and he was in authority. But... but Here's the good news of what Christ does, right? We don't have to run from God. But because of Christ and his death on the cross, we can now run in confidence to God, who who is not standing ready to punish us, but who stands ready to forgive us, to change us, to, to grow us into the image of his son, Jesus. Jesus is the perfect peacemaker. And then finally, in verses 19 through 22, we, we see that the promise of peace at Christmas is worked out. It's exercised. It's practiced in the church. Because Jesus is the perfect peacemaker, the one who brings true peace between men and God and among those who are in Christ, there is a change in the status of those who have trusted the Prince of Peace for salvation. No longer are they strangers and aliens to the promises of God, but now they are, as Paul says, fellow citizens of the saints. And members of the household of God. This image of the household of God is a common one for the church throughout the New Testament. It's used by Paul. It's also used by Peter in his letters. And that's precisely what Paul's getting at here. The the household of God, the church, which is composed of people who were once enemies of God and, and enemies of each other, is thus being put together and built up in peace and by peace as a dwelling place for the Spirit of God, Paul says. And at the center of what Paul is talking about here is is verse 20. It demonstrates to us, verse 20, when 
Paul writes this, We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Here in these verses, first we see... uh, uh, the, the way in which uh, we see in way in which the household of God is constructed, it's it's first founded on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There are two words that, in a summary way, refer to larger things. That word apostles refers to the teaching of the twelve disciples, who were witnesses and co-laborers with Jesus, and and later who would preach and testify to him, and whose teaching is ultimately codified in what we know as the New Testament. The prophets are the Old Testament prophets. Right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jerah, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Once you start, you can't stop. Right? Those are the prophets. But Moses was also a prophet. And so was Samuel. And at times, David is called a prophet. So when Paul says the prophets here, the apostles and the prophets, when he says prophets, he's referring to all of the Old Testament. It's just a way of referring to all of, of the Old Testament scriptures. Ultimately, then, the foundation for the household of God, which is the church, is the whole of the scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament for us today. But what's more fascinating in verse 20 is what follows here, that Jesus Christ himself, this Prince of Peace and Redeemer, is the cornerstone. Now, we don't have cornerstones in modern architecture too much anymore. But in ancient architecture, most large buildings were made out of stone, large stones, but because they didn't use mortar, they didn't use like a cement or anything to hold those bricks together, each and every stone had to be cut by hand to fit perfectly with the other ones around it. And so if you were a stonemason or even an architect in, in, in ancient times, you were a person of great skill. The cornerstone then was the first and the most crucial stone laid any time a building was being put together. It was placed in the foundation of these ancient buildings. It was the first stone to go into the ground, which all the other stones would ultimately be cut and and placed to fit with. So the first stone goes in, and then every stone after that is cut to fit the cornerstone and the other stones that are around it. And the ones that come up, you know, the, the, the stones that build up, that build the edifice of the actual building beyond the foundation, those are cut so that they'll fit with the foundation, right? And each one upon the other. But if the cornerstone is out of whack, if the cornerstone is off kilter, you have a building that is not safe, that is not secure, that, that will not stand the test of time. That's how crucial a cornerstone was. And so here we read that in the household of God, this crucial starting point for the house of God, for the family of faith, is Christ himself. In Christ, we have peace with God and peace with one another. Because of him and the peace that he brings, we're able to be fit together as living stones, as Peter will write in his first letter. We're built together as a corporate dwelling place for the Holy Spirit to be a living temple of God. So where in the past the presence of God was manifest in a great temple built with stone in Jerusalem, in Christ a better and a living temple is being built as Jesus reconciles us to God and to one another in his blood and builds us up together in the church to be the church. So knowing then that true peace comes through Christ and that true peace enables us to be at peace with one another, it naturally flows that that peace will endure, will increase, and will mature in the community of people who are following and who are cut and fit and formed to match with the Prince of Peace. 
Jesus was indeed born to bring peace, but not anything so temporary as a peace treaty or a ceasefire between warring nations. Christ is born for a much greater and an everlasting peace, and one that lives on in the relationships between every person who has been made right with God through Jesus. That peace exists, that peace increases, increases that, that peace matures and grows and extends beyond us. This peace is real, it's lasting, and it's being worked out among us. We who are the church, those of us who are by faith, trusting in Jesus for our salvation. And it's worked out among us, it's practiced, it's growing and maturing, even as we proclaim the same gospel of peace and spur one another on in pursuing it together. So then, for those of you who are here this morning, three final points of application. First, find peace in Christ through faith in Him. If you need peace, if you're looking for peace, if you want something that that lasts and and, and affects your life more than, than just conflict resolution kind of stuff, find peace with God first by trusting Jesus. Secondly, share in peace with other believers. You who are trusting in Christ, who have experienced peace with God, now be made at peace with one another and enjoy that peace. Grow that peace. Practice that peace, that that work of reconciliation, of constantly being reconciled to one another. Practice forgiveness. Practice grace. Increase peace among our body that the world might see what real peace looks like. Third and finally, and getting to what I just said, pursue peace as you pursue Jesus with your faith family. This is, a, this is an individual. So peace is an individual thing that God gives to us first, but then it's a, a corporate thing that must be regularly and constantly worked out in the family of faith. Apart from it, we don't fit together like living stones, right? Uh, a temple for the Holy Spirit. If there's not peace among us, uh, that house crumbles. But we have the one who has purchased peace. We have the one who gives us peace. We have the one that shows us forgiveness and grace and what it really looks like and how to practice it. And so we do that together. We do that as a body so that the world might see. So finding peace in Christ, sharing peace with other believers, pursuing peace as you pursue Jesus with your faith family. For you today, this might look like one of three different things. First, if you're a non-Christian, if you're here this morning, you're a guest of ours, and you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not trusting Jesus, but you're here and you're worshiping with us, you're sharing in this time, we're glad that you're here. For you today, finding peace may mean that for the first time you, you pray, you talk to God to receive Jesus as your Savior. To, to turn from your sin, to turn from the hostility that you've created between you and God, and to trust in Jesus and to follow Him. Prayer is as simple as not in the words that we say, but it's in the attitude of our heart. A prayer as simple as, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've rebelled against you. And I'm sorry for my sin. But but God, I, I also know that you sent your son Jesus to be born and to live a perfect life, to die in my place on the cross, to be raised from the dead so that all my sins would be paid for. God, I, I want peace with you. And I'm trusting that your son, Jesus, with all that I am and all I know how, I'm trusting that he's the way to peace. God, would you save me because of Jesus and help me to follow him? Prayer as simple as that, friends. That, that, that's how you can begin to speak to God today and be at peace with God even today. If you don't know Jesus, if you've not yet trusted Jesus, I, I pray that you would speak to God that way today. And at the end of our service, there'll be a time of response where I and, and Pastor Bruce will be standing here at the front to receive you and to pray that prayer with you. If you need help knowing how to approach God for peace with Him. But maybe you are a believer. You've been a believer for a long time and grateful for what God's done in your life. 
right? But, but you don't have a faith family to work that peace out in. Right? Maybe you need to join a local church today. God has not saved us to be saved as, as islands unto ourselves. He's not saved us just to be out in the world all alone, saved but all alone. No, He's saved us to be a part of a community of believers, this household of God. And friend, if you're here visiting this morning and, and, and you don't have a church family and, and you want one, you want to be a part of a church family, I or Pastor Bruce would love to talk with you this morning about how to join our church and what that looks like to be a part of this family of faith that meets here on this corner in Taylor Ranch. Maybe you are a church member. You've, you've been saved by faith in Jesus. You've already joined this church. Maybe you've been a member of this church for a long time. Today, in, in working out this peace, maybe what you need to do is pursue reconciliation with somebody else in the church. Maybe you have wronged or have been wronged by someone in our body. And you need to go to that person today, maybe after service or maybe during our time of response. Just say, hey, brother, hey, sister, um, I need to work this out. And, and we're called to peace, and Christ has made a way for us to be at peace with one another. I want to be at peace with you today. Maybe you need to practice peace and, and increasing peace with somebody in our congregation today. The promise of peace at Christmas is, is fulfilled. It begins with Christ's birth in that manger. But it is perfected, and it is most perfectly fulfilled in His death on the cross and in His resurrection. Christ, our Prince of Peace, making peace between us and God and giving us a way to be at peace among one another and to show the world what real peace looks like. I'm going to pray, and as I do, Danny and the praise band are going to come forward, and they're going to lead us in in song and a time of response. If you want to receive Christ as Savior today, trust in Him for the first time as Savior, as King, as Lord. You come do that today. If, if you are thinking about joining our, our church as a part of working out this peace and having a family of faith to, to work that out with, to grow in your faith with, we want to receive you that way today too and help you know how you can join our church. And church member, if you, if you need to pursue peace with another brother or sister in our congregation, this is the time to do that. Seek peace, seek res- reconciliation so that we might better and more constantly point to Jesus, our Prince of Peace. Heavenly Father.